Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning, and I am uh, very, very thankful for the opportunity to be able to, to share with you. Uh, I have appreciated so much getting to know uh, this church, uh, to know Mark Ford and, and his family, and uh, the men of this church that have been involved in, in Men of Simplicity. It has been truly a joy to, to get to know you. Um, as, <clears throat> as Bevan mentioned, my wife and I came to the Northwest in March uh, of 2001, so we've been here 21 years, and I was born and raised in the state of Texas, so I grew up in the, in the South, and, and when I got to the Northwest, as you can imagine, I experienced a bit of culture shock uh, about a number of different things uh, when I first got here, but one of the things that I picked up on re really quickly was this coffee culture that was in the Northwest. And, and it, was, it was something that was prevalent, and, and so when I got here, that was one of the things that, that I noticed. Now, when I, when I first arrived at the Northwest, I didn't drink coffee. Uh, I didn't like coffee. Uh, I actually finished a bachelor's degree and two master's degrees without a single cup of coffee. I, I liked the smell of it, but I just, I just never drank coffee. And so you can imagine that kind of uh, a shock when you get to a place where it is the, the uh, culture of everything uh, coffee here in the Northwest and, and here in Portland. So on our, one of the first meetings that I had was with a group of college students. And of course, they picked the place that we were going to meet and picked, as you well know, a coffee shop. So I show up at the coffee shop and I'm, I'm at the end of the line and I'm kind of watching as these students go up to the counter to order their coffee. And I was actually amazed. I mean, it sounded like a foreign language. I just sat back kind of in awe as I was listening to these combinations of things that were coming out of their mouth to, to order uh, coffee. And when, when I got to the counter, I was a little bit embarrassed. I actually felt a bit childish because I looked at the, the lady that was taking the order and I said, I'll have a hot chocolate. Now, as soon as I said that, it was like darts and arrows that came from all of the college students. I realized very quickly that I was not being culturally relevant. And this one young lady looked at me and she said, Mike, she said, if you're going to stay in the Northwest and do ministry any length of time, you have to drink coffee. And I said, but I don't like coffee. And she said, well, let us fix your hot chocolate. I didn't know anything was wrong with my hot chocolate. She took my hot chocolate and she handed it back and she said, I'd like a shot of espresso, a little bit of peppermint, whipped cream on top. They handed that back to me and she said, try this. And I took a sip and I have to tell you that on that day, I was converted. <laughs> when I go back south, I kind of joke with my friends. I say, guys, you know, I've been in the Northwest now 21 years. I've got a confession to make. Uh, I've become a social drinker. <laughs> of course, I'm just talking about coffee. But that was a, a real culture shock. And what I begin to realize is that not only do they put a great deal of emphasis on great tasting coffee and really brewing coffee and, and all that goes into that, but when you go into a coffee shop, they create this whole ambiance that, that they actually want you to come in and, and sit and read and journal, think and ponder, talk to people you don't even know. And, and they just kind of create this whole ambiance in the, in the coffee culture here in the Northwest. And so after I'd been here a, a few weeks, I was trying to get into the, the culture, the Portland culture coffee vibe. And so I'd gone to a coffee shop. I had successfully ordered my, my coffee. I was starting to speak the language and I, and I sat down. But as soon as I sat down, I looked around and I was embarrassed again because I showed up with nothing to read. I didn't have a journal. I didn't have anything to write with. And I'm looking around the coffee shop feeling rather embarrassed again. And as I was sitting there, I looked down at my coffee, shop, my coffee cup and much to my surprise, there's reading material on your coffee cup. I was like, this is the greatest place ever. And so I'm sitting there reading my coffee cup. Now, this was so profound that after all of these decades, I still have the coffee jacket that was around my cup. Because I was having a moment with God and he was speaking to me as I was reading this coffee cup. Now, before you think that's too strange, if God can speak through a donkey in the Bible, he can speak through a cup of coffee. And so as I'm sitting there reading my, my cup, this is what it said. Who says you can't change the world? And as I sat there and I was pondering that, it wasn't like God was saying, Mike Thibodeau, God's going to use you to change the world. But what God was saying to me was, 
You have a part in what I want to do to impact the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who says you can't change the world? As I'm sipping my cup of coffee, I'm continuing to read. The next question said this, ever wonder how big a footprint your unique lifestyle leaves on the planet? Now, I had been in the Northwest long enough to know that they weren't talking about a Jesus lifestyle. But as I continued to reflect upon that, God was just speaking to me about that, that reality. Ever wonder how big a footprint your unique lifestyle as a follower of Jesus Christ will leave on this planet? And I was overwhelmed in that moment thinking about God's call upon my life as an evangelist, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but thinking more broadly about the call upon his church to be his witness in a very dark place. See, God intends to use you. He intends to use you to be a part of leaving a footprint, if you will, on this planet. A footprint that is similar to the footprint that Jesus himself left, and he left a big mark on this planet. That after 2,000 years, his message of hope and redemption and forgiveness that is available to all who will put faith and trust in Christ is still a message being told and a message that is changing the lives of people to this very day. But don't miss this, church. God intends to use you and me to be a part of his rescue mission. And he wants to use us. This morning, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. Because if we're going to leave a footprint on this planet, we need to take a look at Jesus and, and look at the example of his life. You know, as I was sitting there in the coffee shop and I was thinking about this very thing, this is the picture that came to mind for me. The picture of, of let's see if this is going to work, there it is. A picture of footprints on the planet. And I'm a very visual person and I'm sitting there pondering these questions and I'm thinking about what kind of footprint, what kind of footprint will we leave? When we've lived our life and we've breathed our last, what kind of footprint will you have left on this planet? Will it be a footprint that is pointing and leading others to faith in Jesus Christ? And so I want us to examine Christ's Walk. I want us to look at the footprints that he left because he is an example for us. And in Matthew chapter 9, we pick up in a portion of Matthew where he is giving a summary of the ministry that Jesus has been doing. And it's actually an introduction then to the commissioning of the disciples to actually go and to, to be about spreading the message in the same manner in which he had been doing. In Matthew chapter 9, we begin reading, it says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Will you pray with me? Father God, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we are able to gather together to worship you. And God, we are thankful that you love this world so much that you stepped out of heaven and you took on flesh and you lived and you dwelt among us, that you lived a sinless life and you died the death that we deserve and you rose from the grave to live forevermore, and that you have invited us into this rescue mission to seek and to save the lost. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take your word and speak to every heart that's here, young and old alike, in that way that you do where your spirit takes and, and communicates that truth. God, speak to us. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to understand, but a heart that is resolved to follow you as you speak to us today. And we pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So this message this morning, I believe God wants to challenge us. To challenge us to, to think about evangelism, not as a, as a program that's part of a, a church organization, although we have those, but to really understand that God's intent is that the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be something that every single follower of Jesus has a part in carrying that mission out and we see as we look through this, this text, we're going to see three images that remind us of the footprints of Jesus so that we can walk in the manner that he walks. So if evangelism is going to be a way of life, if we're going to live a footprint that looks like Jesus, the first thing that we need to see here is we need to be going and telling. Notice verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. You know, one observation we can make about footprints is that they're left by people who are moving. Stop and think about that for a moment. They're left by people who are moving. Do you notice what the text said? Go, go. Now we've all been there, right? Where we've, we've come to a stoplight and the light turns green and we've got cars in front of us and a car behind us, but the car in front of us seems to have forgotten why they actually got in the car that day. They're not moving. The light's green, but they're not going. And maybe they're on their phone and they're texting, or maybe they're looking at Facebook, or maybe they've got a child in the back and they're dealing with the child, but, but you're looking at the light and it's universal, it's green, it means go, right? And so being the courteous, patient Christian that you are, rather than just blaring on the horn, you kind of give a courtesy honk, you know what I'm saying? Just kind of, just to wake up a little bit, because go, it's green, go. Put, a, put it in motion. We've all been there. Listen, Jesus' strategy was to go. It was to go. It was not to wait for people to come and see. It was to go and to reach them where they were. To go. Jesus loved to hang around and spend time with lost people. In fact, if we look in this text earlier in the chapter, in Matthew chapter 9, look what it says in verse 10. It says, and it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, this is the house of Matthew, the tax collector, who's become a follower. It says that as he was reclining at the table, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus, when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus loved to spend time with lost people. And in this moment, he is doing what is most universal with any person anywhere in any culture on the planet. He's eating with them. Now I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you had a cup of coffee or shared a meal with someone who does not know Jesus? When was the last time that you ate with a sinner? When you had someone that, that was far from God in your home and shared a meal with them? Jesus loved to spend time with sinners. And in the most basic way, he ate with them. And there's something powerful about that because when you eat with someone... You talk about things you don't normally talk about. It opens up the conversation to a whole nother level. One of the most simple things that the church can learn to do is to eat and to have a cup of coffee with someone who doesn't know Jesus. Jesus was never distracted from that purpose. He was always going and always telling. In fact, there were moments where the disciples would get comfortable, just like we do. We kind of like to stay in our comfort zone, right? And the disciples had gotten comfortable with the success that, that they had had in one particular area. And the Bible tells us in Mark chapter 1 verse 38 that Jesus said to his disciples, reminding them, listen to what he said, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also for this is what I came for. He was always looking for someone else who didn't know the good news that the kingdom of God was near that Jesus was here on a rescue mission. And he was never distracted from that. I don't know about you, but I can get easily distracted. 
I can remember having gone to a revival meeting with my wife and we pulled up to a stoplight and I was sitting talking with her and kind of flirting with her a little bit. This was pre-kids and we were just talking and, and after a, a little bit, my wife looked at me and she said, Mike, what are you waiting on? And kind of sarcastically, I fired back. I said, well, I'm waiting for the light to change. And very gracious and tenderly, she said to me, Mike, that's a blinking red light. It's not ever gonna change. Now, I don't know about you, but I can get easily distracted. But Jesus never got distracted from this rescue mission. He was never distracted from the people who needed him most, the people who were lost. He had to go. He was compelled to go. And we're told in verse 12 why. Listen to what he said here. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. So he was going and during Jesus' visit with a tax collector named Zacchaeus, he spoke even more specifically about this mission. Listen to what he said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. He said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. From heaven to earth, from city to city, from village to village, from person to person, Jesus was going and he was seeking out the lost. Those who had been in rebellion, those who had, had, had sinned against him, and who are in desperate need of a Savior. He was going and telling because there were people who were lost and they needed to be found. Listen, church, listen, friends, can I say to you, there is something worse than being lost. Do you know what it is? There is one thing worse than being lost. It's having no one who is coming to look for you. I want you to think back to the moment that you begin to hear the story about Jesus. I want you to think about the people that were in your life that cared enough about you to share the good news of Jesus Christ. What if they hadn't participated with God in this rescue mission? See, God is sending us and God came and he was going and telling because there were people that needed to hear. There were people that were lost that needed to be saved. And we see that this going and telling, it's unpacked. There's three words that kind of tell us what this, this telling that Jesus did look like. Look at the first word there in verse 35. It says that Jesus was teaching. I love this word and I love this example of Jesus because I think many of us, when we think about evangelism, we, we often have the wrong picture of what it is. Because it's more than just some slick presentation that we give to someone. Jesus was teaching them. See, I think the church needs to adopt this again into our thinking to realize that evangelism is actually coming alongside someone who doesn't know and needs to learn. That's what you do as a Christian. You come alongside of someone who needs to know there is a God. That they need to know that there's a God who created this world and he loved this world. They need to learn about themselves. That, that from the very beginning everything was good. But man rebelled against God and chose to live life their own way. And the reason that, that there is brokenness, the reason there's sin and sorrow and suffering and death in this world is because we rebelled against the one who is life. And if you're separated from life, the consequence of that is death. And there's death and there's brokenness. And there's hardship in this world because of sin. But they need to learn that there's a God who loved them so much that he came and he took on flesh and he lived a sinless life and he died on the cross for all of our sins. And he was buried and on third day he rose again and he lives forevermore. They need to learn from you about how that message and that good news about who God is and who man is and what Jesus did, how it changed your life. They need a teacher. Can you think of a time when you were in school where you had a difficult subject, but you had a great teacher? A teacher that took time to answer your questions? A teacher that was patient with you, that time and time after they explained it and you still didn't get it, they found another way to explain it again. The lost around us need a great teacher. Someone to come alongside and to help explain to them the things of God, who they are, and about Jesus. But it also says that Jesus was proclaiming. He was proclaiming. This word in the Greek means to be a public herald, to cry out publicly. Now before there was Twitter and Facebook and social media, but before there was news media, when a king needed to make an announcement, 
He would send out messengers who would proclaim and make a public announcement. People that would hear that announcement would naturally begin to share with others and the message would spread. It's that Greek word that's used to describe what Jesus was doing. He was proclaiming. In fact, the scripture says in John chapter 3, we're, we're told this description of Jesus. John is talking, he says, that Jesus who came from above is above all. And that Jesus, what he had seen and heard of that, he testifies. And it's that same idea of what we've seen and heard, we testify about, that the early church in Acts chapter 4, they said we cannot stop talking about what we've seen and what we heard. He was proclaiming. Not only was he teaching and proclaiming, it says that he was healing. This is an interesting Greek word. Because in the Greek, this word means to serve, to care for, so as to heal and restore. Man, when I read that definition of this Greek word, I thought, that is the gospel. That is exactly what the church is supposed to do. That like a nurse or like a doctor, for someone who is sick, we care for them. We take a genuine concern to serve them and care for them so that they might experience the healing that comes through Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross that if they would just believe, they too could experience healing and freedom from sin and death. Jesus was teaching, he was proclaiming, he was healing. We know that Jesus articulated that very purpose in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verse 18, he opened up the school of Isaiah and he read this verse saying, today this verse has been fulfilled in your presence. But listen to what he articulated. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus read, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Teaching proclaiming, healing, go. That's the mission strategy that Jesus had. And Jesus said in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. That is our mission, church. It's a mission to go. And it's one of the reasons I love the partnership with this church. You have the greatest name for any church that I could think of. If you ever come to Sunday and forget your mission, you just need to go read your sign. Go, go. That's the mission that God has given us. And so I want to ask you as you think about that, are you sitting at a spiritual stoplight today? And have you recognized that the light is green? Perhaps the Holy Spirit's given a little courtesy honk into your life to say, remember what the mission is. Go. If we're to walk in the footprints of Jesus, if we're going to be living, understanding that evangelism and being a witness is to be a part of everyday life, we not only need to be going and telling, we need to be seeing and caring. Notice verse 36. It says, And seeing the multitude, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. When you see the lost, what do you see? When you see the lost, what do you feel? What do you feel? The Bible says that Jesus felt compassion. Now, this is another interesting Greek word because it means to be moved in the bowels. Back in that time, they looked at the bowels, the innards down in Texas. We'd say, had a gut feeling about it. Deep down in my gut. In that time, they kind of viewed that as that, that representation of the inner part of man where, where we have that emotion. Today, we might use the reference, with all my heart. I, I just feel it in my heart. When Jesus saw the lost, he felt something. He felt compassion. And friends, we need to hear this because it can be, it can be very easy for us to become jaded in the, in the world in which we're living. It can be easy for our hearts to become hard toward the very people that Christ calls us to love. When you see the lost around you, what do you feel? The story is told of a, a little girl who She'd constantly been asking her mommy to let her go to the store. The store wasn't too far from the house, but the reason the mother was hesitant was because as you walked down the road, it curved to the left and there was a grove of trees where the curve was. The store sat just beyond that curve, but it meant that that little girl would be out of the mother's sight. And so she was so hesitant to let her little girl walk to the corner store. The little girl kept begging her mommy, Mommy, please, I'm a big girl now. I'm big enough to go. 
The mother had started timing how, how long she thought it would take the little girl to get to the store and get back. And she knew it would take about 10 minutes round trip to make the journey. Finally, the mother reluctantly agreed to let the little girl go to the store. The little girl took off walking and the mother looked at her clock, was watching it diligently. She saw the little girl make the bend and was out of sight. She's watching the clock. Ten minutes had passed and the little girl hadn't come back yet. The mother's getting nervous. She's starting to second guess the fact that she'd let her little girl go to the corner store. Fifteen minutes passed. Finally, 20 minutes and she saw the little girl coming down the road and the mother ran down to meet her and she was frustrated and just immediately began to, to scold her. Why were you late? You were supposed to be back. Just go straight to the store and come back. She said, Mommy, Mommy, wait, please, let me explain. She said, as I was coming home, I saw my friend sitting on the side of the road and, and her dolly was broken. The mother was beginning to think maybe she had been too harsh and had responded too quick and so the mother said to the little girl, so you stopped to help her fix her dolly? The little girl said, no, mommy, not just to fix her dolly. I stopped to help her cry. Compassion. When you see the lost around you, what do you feel? When Jesus saw people that, that were desperate and lost, he felt compassion. Now, for many of you ladies, as I, saw, I was telling that story and you saw this picture, that, that kind of resonated with you. Some of you guys are going, nice story, but the dolly thing didn't really connect with me. Thanks for trying, preacher. So, you know, I've, I've, I've honestly been thinking about this. This is such an important concept, compassion. How do you explain compassion to men, to godly men, to menly men, manly men? How do you explain that? Because guys, I want you to understand something, that biblical compassion is not weak. Biblical compassion is strong. Biblical compassion requires sacrifice. In fact, if you understand biblical compassion, you realize that Jesus said that there is no greater love than this, than one would lay down his life for his friends. There's nothing weak about compassion biblically. And as I thought about that, and I thought about an image that would help Men understand what compassion is. This was the image that came to mind. Many of you, as you see this image, you remember exactly where this image came from. That in April of 1995, Oklahoma City bombing, this picture ended up on newspaper and news media all across the country. I want you to look at that, men. That's compassion. The willingness of these firemen and first responders to run into danger in order to help save and rescue those who could not save themselves. That's compassion. That's compassion. When you see others in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in sporting events, in the community, what do you feel? Everywhere Jesus went, he saw people, but he didn't just notice them, he really saw them. Look what the text says in Matthew 9, verse 36. He saw that they were harassed. This is a, in the Greek, this word means to, to mangle as if by a wild beast. That's how A.T. Robertson, a Greek scholar, described this word. To mangle as if by a wild beast. Many of us have seen those those clips where there's an animal that, that races down and takes down its prey and then just mangles that prey. That's the image of this word. It's very vivid in the Greek. Jesus says, when I see those who are lost, who don't know yet about me and the rescue mission that I'm on, I see people who are mangled. Peter said, Satan is like a roaring lion prowling about seeking someone to devour Jesus said that as he saw the people, he saw that they were bullied, they were downcast. And this Greek word means literally to be thrown down. It's a, it's a word that's used to describe a drunkard who is passed out. It's a word that's used to describe someone who is, who is cowering and, and fearing. If you think of an abusive child who would curl up and draw back, that's the imagery of this word. Jesus, when he looked and he saw the people around him, he saw people that lacked spiritual care. He saw people that lacked guidance. He saw people that he described them like sheep without a shepherd. When you see the people around you, what do you see? 
Do you see what Jesus saw? People that were helpless and needed someone who would come alongside and teach them. Someone who would come alongside and proclaim good news. Someone who would care and serve in order to bring that spiritual healing that they need. Again, if we look at Luke chapter 4 verse 18, we see very specifically what Jesus saw. He said, I came to proclaim the gospel to the poor, those who are in spiritual poverty. Jesus asked the question, what can a lost person give in exchange for their soul? And the answer is nothing. There's nothing they can do to save themselves. There's nothing someone who is far from God because of their sin choices, nothing they can do to make themselves right with a holy God. They're in spiritual poverty. He said, I came to proclaim release to the captives. Those who do not have Jesus in their life and they don't know about God's rescue mission, they're in spiritual captivity. They're in bondage. The lost are held fast to the power of sin, to the presence of sin, to the penalty of sin. Jesus said, I came to bring sight to the blind, that those who are apart from Christ, they're in a spiritual blindness. They've been deceived. They've been lied to. And they need someone who is willing to speak the truth because the only thing that breaks through deception and lie is truth. Jesus said, I came to set free those who are oppressed. That they're in spiritual oppression. They're weighed down, harassed, and bullied. That they know and they're aware that there's brokenness in their life. They, they know and they're aware that, they, that there's something more. In fact, oftentimes people apart from God are trying to fix their sin problem on their own only to find that they can't escape the brokenness, the shame, the guilt in their life. And that's because there's only one door out of brokenness and his name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, when I, when I look around me, I see people in spiritual poverty and captivity and blindness and oppression. But he didn't just see them where they were. He saw what they could be because of his sacrifice. He saw that the poor could be rich in him. He saw that those that were captive could be freed by the blood of Jesus. He saw that those who were blind could see if they would hear the truth and had someone who would explain it to them. He knew that those who were oppressed could be free. When you see the lost around you, what do you see? When you see the lost around you, what do you feel? Jesus felt their pain. He felt compassion for them. He was caring for them. And we see this compassion all the way through chapter 9. For at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus demonstrated his compassion and his mercy for the paralytic. He demonstrated his mercy and compassion for Matthew and the tax collectors and sinners. He demonstrated his compassion for a synagogue official and a daughter who had died. He shared his compassion for a woman who had been hemorrhaging and bleeding for 12 years. He shared his compassion with two blind men. He shared his compassion with a demon-possessed man. When you look at the lost, what do you feel? When I was in high school... There was a Christian recording artist named Steve Camp, and he had a song that he, he wrote that he was trying to help the church think about that very question. When you see the lost, what do you feel? I'll never forget where I was the first time I heard the chorus of this song. It went like this. Do you feel their pain? Has it touched your life? Can you taste the salt in the tears they cry? Will you love them more than the hate that's been? Will you love them back to life again? I told you I was a very visual kind of person, and I remember hearing that phrase. Can you taste the salt in the tears they cry? And I began to think as a high school boy, I mean, how close do you actually have to be, God, to actually taste the tears when somebody else is crying? And the Lord, very patiently dealing with a knucklehead high school boy, said, Mike, don't you get it? You taste the salt and the tears they cry when you're moved so deeply within that the tears come down your own cheek into your own lips. And I remember being so convicted. Because if we get honest, aren't there people all around us that are just hard to love sometimes? People in our neighborhood that are hard to love. People in our workplace that are hard to love. People in the community that are hard to love. I mean, heck, if we get really honest, sometimes there's people within the church that are hard to love. Within our family that are hard to love. 
And Jesus says, I want you to love them. In fact, he said to these religious leaders that were were asking, why do you eat with sinners? He said to them, go learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Church, we would do well to actually figure out what that means. What did Jesus mean when he said, I desire compassion and not sacrifice? He's he's quoting from Hosea 6.6, and it's a reference in the original Old Testament context to the loyalty of God. And you see that loyalty wrapped up in the sacrificial system. And you see the compassion of God wrapped up in the sacrificial system. That a God of grace and mercy was willing to accept that sacrifice and extend forgiveness to them based on that sacrifice. And Jesus is saying, you religious leaders, you practice this sacrifice over and over and you depend upon the compassion and the grace and the mercy of Almighty God to extend forgiveness to you. And yet you who've experienced his compassion cannot extend it to others. And when we realize that Jesus himself fulfilled Every aspect of that sacrificial system when Jesus Christ laid down his life once and for all for the sins of men. That he was the lamb sacrificed, his blood given, that we might be forgiven and able to be made right with God by faith and trust in Jesus. Jesus would say to us who've passed under the blood of the cross of Calvary, How can you who've received such compassion not extend compassion to others? And it's convicting. We're not only to be going and telling, we're to be seeing and caring. But Jesus concludes in verse 97, or verse 37, we need to be rejoicing and praying. Jesus then said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, we see in that very statement that he makes there actually good news. I've read that passage so many times as a preacher, as a a minister, and it it always came across with this heavy, sobering reality. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And I just kind of was bummed out, you know what I'm saying? It was in 2007, it was another moment with God. It was so significant, I wrote it down. Because I said, Mike, read it again. Don't you see it? There's good news in what I said there. And I read it again. The harvest is what, church? It's plentiful. See, I grew up in a farming community in Texas, out in West Texas, where cotton farming was a big deal. And if you got to the end of the season and got to harvest time, and you had a good harvest, Man, that was, that was a good thing. The farmers were happy. You could see it on people's faces in church. But if you got to the harvest time and it was a plentiful harvest, man, there was rejoicing. There was rejoicing. Because there are so many things that could interrupt the harvest. If there was a frost, if there was unseasonably warm, or if it was too cold or, or too hot, or if there was too much rain or too little rain, or if there was too many of one kind of insect and not enough of the other kind of insect, you could lose the harvest altogether. So to get to the end and have a harvest, that was good. But to have a plentiful harvest, that's really good news. Don't miss that. It's so easy when we begin to think about evangelism, we think about being a witness for Christ, and we think about the mission of the church to proclaim the good news. It's very easy sometimes for us to get discouraged. Looking around this room, I can see that there are some of you who are wiser in years. Do you like the way I said that? (laughs) And some of you who are wiser in years can remember the, the days in the United States where it was harvest time spiritually. Billy Graham would go into a place to preach for a a, a few days or a week, and he would end up staying months. And it was harvest time. We were seeing people saved in large number. And for some of you sitting in this room, you look around today and you're just like, what happened? Where's the harvest? I mean, Jesus talks about a plentiful harvest, but I don't see it. I was reading a a sermon by an old pastor from the 1800s. His name was John A. Broaddus. 
And he said something about this that I think is really important for us to hear this morning. Listen to what he said. Are you in a season of sowing or a season of reaping? There are seasons in the spiritual sphere, sowing seasons and reaping seasons, just as there are in farming. But if you expect that there will be just as much sowing and reaping at any one time as at another, then you will certainly, you will certainly be disappointed. The church ought to be seeking to reap a harvest of, uh, uh, reap a harvest of spiritual good among those around them all the while. But they will have seasons which are rather of sowing and other seasons which will be rather of reaping. See, harvest time follows the hard work of tilling the soil, casting the seed, and letting that seed grow. And I would submit to you that I think right now we are in the midst of a sowing season. And so the question that I have for you as a church is, are you willing to do the hard work of tilling the ground, sowing the seed, and coming alongside people to teach and to proclaim, to serve and to care about them until that harvest has a chance to grow and become a full, ready harvest? So I think so often in our instant everything world that we live in today, we forget about these simple principles of sowing and reaping. But here's something I want you to think about. Sometimes a sowing season takes longer than what we expect. Listen very carefully to me. See, we're living in a culture now that nothing in the culture around them, nothing in our world around them has reinforced the biblical moral standard of God. We've had the Ten Commandments and the moral standard of God ripped away from before the eyes of generation. Nothing in the culture sets the stage. Nothing in most family units as more and more young people and people that are coming behind us, they're growing up in homes where they didn't have a Christian voice in their home. So nothing has set the stage. There hasn't been any tilling of the soil. There hasn't been any casting of seed. And so we're living at a time now where Back decades ago when Billy Graham could preach a crusade, he was stepping onto a platform where even within the culture around them, even within schools where they would still pray at the beginning of the day, they had the moral standard of God, the Ten Commandments that were constantly working upon the soul and the conscience of individuals. All of that is gone. We don't step into a lost person's world at the same place that people did in decades past when they shared the gospel. And think about all of the time that it took for a child, maybe growing up in a Christian home, growing up in a culture that still supported the moral standard of God and the Ten Commandments. And when was the average person coming to faith in Christ? In their preteens and teen years. It's the reason why those crusades exploded. It's the reason why camp ministry, where kids would be taken to camp and you would see hundreds of students coming to faith in Christ. But let me ask you a question. Think of the number of years that it took of preparing the soil for that moment of harvest. And the church today gets frustrated and gives up because we don't see something immediately. And I want to ask you again, church, are you willing to do the labor of sowing when you may not even see the harvest in your lifetime? See, I believe that's where we are today. And I believe there are a few in the church that understand the basic principle that Jesus gives of sowing and reaping in order to really be a part of what he's doing. We do still have a role to play and what we do is very important. You can't get a harvest without a season of sowing. And so what do we do? This is where we get to the great reality here. And by the way, keep in mind that the scripture says both the sower and the reaper receive the same reward. Don't lose sight of that. I mean, we love harvest time because it's great. But the reward goes to both the sower and the harvester. Look at the reality. The reality is this. He says the laborers are few. Now, it can be viewed completely and totally as a negative, or you can realize that the harvest is so plentiful, we just need more workers. 
And I believe that's what Jesus is trying to say. One day when we stand before the throne of God, we're going to see a harvest that will blow our minds in terms of its size and capacity. But will we be willing to, to be a laborer now? What does he say we need to do? Look at verse 38. So what do we need to do? He says, therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. We need to not only be rejoicing, we need to be praying. That word beseech means to beg. It's an earnest desire, a deep pleading with the Lord. To beg him to send out workers. That word send is a very interesting word in the Greek. It means to thrust out, to force out. Does that surprise anyone? It did me the first time I read it. And then I stepped back and I went, oh, God, you already know how much we love to stay in our comfort zone. You already know that when it comes to prayer time about this, we need to just ask you, Lord, thrust me, move me, move me even though I really don't want to sometimes. Send me and the workers into the harvest. And notice that he says, send us into the harvest. It's not send us into the fields. He's already commissioned us to go into the fields. What Jesus is saying is, I want to put you in the harvest. That's what you pray for. Let your prayer be, God, help my efforts, help my work, help all that I do to put us right in the midst of harvest. I can't think of a better way for Go Church to begin to pray. God, put us in the midst of harvest. Send us, force us, thrust us into the harvest. If we're going to do evangelism as a way of life, walk in the footprints of Jesus, we need to be going and telling. This week, at every stoplight that you encounter, I want you to ask yourself, do you see the spiritual light is green? Are you going? Do you have someone that you can come alongside and teach and proclaim that you can care and serve in order to help them understand about Jesus? At every stoplight, now, I know you've got a lot of traffic circles. I know. But find a stoplight this week. And go. I want to ask you this week. When you see the loss around you, what do you feel? Do you feel compassion? Compassion is moved into action. And this week, will you be rejoicing and praying? God, send us, force us into your harvest. In just a moment, the worship team is going to be coming. And as they close us out in a song, I, as I've been praying about this moment in this time in our service, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to what God is saying to you. Maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, you'd say, Pastor, I'm one of those that, that's lost Man, when I hear that description of, of those that are in spiritual poverty and, and spiritual captivity and spiritual oppression, those who've been harassed and are downcast, Pastor, I feel like you're talking about me. How did you know? And if that's you this morning, the good news is you have someone who's looking for you. In fact, you have lots of people that are looking for you because more than likely you didn't end up in this service just randomly, there was somebody who loved you enough that told you about this church. There was a group of people that loved you enough to put out advertisement, to get the word out, to take and put a door hanger on your door, and it's why you came this morning. God loves you. And if you're in a place this morning, you say, Mike, my, my life is broken. I understand the impact of sin. I feel the shame. I feel the, the regret, the guilt. Are you telling me that God loves me and he has a way out of this? Yes. And if you're sitting there wondering how, I need that hope. I need that in my life. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. What that means is you acknowledge, I'm not going to continue to live my life my way anymore. I'm going to repent of that. I'm going to turn from that. And I acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And I'm going to follow him. And if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, that Jesus is the hope for you, that he died for you, that he was buried and he rose again. And if you will trust in him, God will do a miracle of healing in your life.
He'll restore you back in a relationship with him. He will forgive your sins and give you new and abundant life. If that's you this morning and you've never made that decision, I want to give you an opportunity today to say yes to Jesus. Maybe you're going, I still have some questions. And so in just a moment, as we begin to see, seeing Bevan is going to be over here to my left. And if you're going, man, I've just got some questions. I, I want to make this decision, but I, I need to talk with someone. Bevan's going to be available. Just go over and say, Bevan, I need Jesus in my life, but I, I've got some questions and just ask him. Maybe for many of you in this room this morning, you already know that you're a follower of Jesus. You know he's changed you. You know he's made you right with him. And I want to ask you this morning, will you begin this very day to respond to what God is saying? That you'd be willing to just even start this morning in prayer. To say, God, I'm seeing the, this idea of harvest in a different way. Lord, send me. Send us. Force us into the harvest. And in this holy moment, we just want to take a moment as a church to respond to what God is saying. Maybe it's a response of confession to say, God, I haven't been going. I haven't been telling. telling. I'm sitting at the green light. I hear you honking. Forgive me. God, I haven't been caring. Maybe you're in a place like I was that you're, you're jaded. And you've got people that are hard to love and you say, God, forgive me. Help me to love people. And so I'm going to ask the worship team to begin to sing. I'm going to ask you to stand. If this morning you need to make a response in some way to God, this altar is going to be open this morning just so that we can have a space to move to, to say, God, I've heard you this morning. Maybe you need to come with your spouse or come with a friend and just to pray. And if you need Jesus for the very first time, will you come? Say yes to him. Let me lead us in prayer and then we'll begin to sing. Father God, I want to thank you for this time, this moment. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would move among us. That God, we would not just hear your word, but that we would truly respond to it in this moment. Respond with confession. Respond with prayer. And God, if there's anyone here that needs you for the very first time, that they would just say yes to Jesus. And so Lord, we, we pray, let your spirit move among us. We ask this in your name. Would you stand to your feet? As the worship team sings, if God is speaking to you, will you come? Will you move and make a response today to what God is saying? Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.